Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, happy Friday uh, to you and yours. The weekend is finally here. Oh, man. And are we going to end Friday on a great note? Uh, we'll end the show with a conversation with Delano Squires uh, about abortion and the black church and how the black church is abandoning uh, biblical teachings for political treasure. Uh, Royce White uh, will be here. We'll talk uh, some Elon Musk uh, with Royce White. Royce is starting to warm up to Elon Musk uh, as <laughs> Elon is, is, seems to be getting red-pilled, I think, uh, and has taken a clear position. You know, he's done voting Democratic and is going to vote Republican, and that has caught the attention of Royce White, who has been pretty skeptical of Elon ever since he announced he was planning to take over uh, Twitter. Now Royce is starting to warm up, and so we'll, we'll hear what Royce thinks about uh, the new uh, Elon Musk. Uh, but we're gonna start today's show. I'm very, very excited. Uh, we have two great college football experts, one in studio, Josh Pate, who lives right here in Nashville and works for 24-7 Sports. Uh, but even bigger and better than that, Josh, did we got Charlie Ward's backup quarterback uh, <laughs> is going to be on the show today, uh, Danny Cannell. Uh, I don't, did you, were you aware, I mean, you were kind of young, Josh. Were you aware that Danny Cannell was Charlie Ward's backup quarterback? I think I probably at some point in my crib saw a time or two. Danny tossed the ball around the sideline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, of course, Danny uh, played at Florida State, played in the NFL, and is kind enough uh, to join us uh, via Skype. So we let's go with the three box, get all three guys in here. So I think Josh and Danny uh, know each other. Uh, a little bit. Am I, am I correct? Hello, Danny, and thank you for joining the show. What's up, Jason? How are we doing? I am jealous. I'll just tell you that. I did not know there was an option to be in studio today, or I might have hopped on a flight and been there to be with you guys in person, because you got the legend uh, Josh Pate in there with you, one of the fastest growing names in this business. <laughs> I'm jealous to be with you guys, man. But you look great. Jason, you have like a half a Jason of what I used to see. You look fantastic, man. Well, I would look better if Josh wasn't here in one of these little <laughs> tiny T-shirts that he's wearing, uh, showing off his, you know, uh, gym body, his 24-hour fitness body. But I, I look better when Josh isn't there. Uh, but let, let's get to uh, our topic today. Let's let's st establish a little context and foundation. Uh, Nick Saban has erupted and gone off on uh, Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Deion Sanders at Jackson State. Uh, this whole NIL situation, name, image, and likeness, uh, seems to have Nick Saban 
pissed off. Uh, let's, let's hear a couple of his comments about Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher and Jackson State and Deion Sanders. But I know the consequence is going to be difficult for the people who are spending tons of money to get players. And you've read about them. You know who they are. I mean, we were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. All right, we didn't buy one player. All right, but I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. Yep. So it's, uh, it's tough, and people blame the NCAA. But in defense of the NCAA, we are where we are right, because of the litigation that the NCAA gets, like the transfer portal. This is not going to change because they cannot enforce their rules, just like Nate said. We have a rule right now that says you cannot use name, image, and likeness to entice a player to come to your school. Hell, read about it in the paper. I mean, Jackson State paid a guy a million dollars last year that was a really good Division I player to come to school. It was in the paper, and they bragged about it. Nobody did anything about it. Mm. All right, so uh, Jimbo Fisher uh, has responded. Let's, let's hear from Jimbo. It's a shame that we have to do this. It's really despicable. It's despicable that somebody can say things about somebody and an organ. More importantly, 17-year-old kids. You're taking shots at 17-year-old kids and their families. They broke state laws. They're, they're, they're all money. We bought every player on this group. We never bought anybody. No rules were broken. Nothing was done wrong. It was all in the, and the way we do things, the ethics in which we do things. And these families, it's despicable that a reputable head coach could come out and say this when he doesn't get his way or things don't go his way. The narcissist in him doesn't allow those things to happen. Some people think they're God. Go dig into how God did his, his deal. You may find out about, about a guy that a lot of things you don't want to know. We built him up to be the czar of football. Go dig into his past or anybody that's ever coached with him. You can find out anything you want to find out, what he does and how he does it. And it's despicable. It really is. Uh, a couple of things, Jimbo. First of all, have you had any contact with Nick since? No. Uh, oh, he's called. You just didn't take the call? Not going to. We're done. And uh, He shows you who he is. You know, y'all have both spoken so highly of each other in the past in terms of what y'all have done in your previous relationship. So how disappointing was it to hear that from him, you know, in terms of, you know, a mentor type to you It's disappointing. Well? No, it wasn't. No, listen, you coach with people like Bobby Bowden and learn how to do things. You coach with other people and learn how not to do things. There's a reason people don't go, I ain't went back and worked for him with opportunities. Mm. Uh... Let me, give Deion Sanders, yeah, let me give Deion <laughs> Sanders the final word here. Deion uh, quoted in USA Today, uh, Coach Saban wasn't talking to me. Coach Saban wasn't talking to Jimbo Fisher. He was talking to his boosters. He was talking to his alumni. He was talking to his givers. He was trying to get money. That's what he was doing. He was just using us to get where he was trying to get to. I've got a new uh, uh, term for NIL. Nick is lying. He's continuing. <laughs> Alabama doesn't pay players. Uh, what say you, you two experts? Uh, Danny, because you're via Skype, I'm going to let you go first. 
what, what, what do you does Alabama not pay players or they they're not giving name image and likeness deals to their recruits I put out a poll today on my Twitter feed I said do, you know do you believe Nick Saban quote does, hasn't bought a player 91% say they don't believe him and I think the other 9% are probably Alabama boosters who are trying to cover for him here's the thing though I don't think Nick Saban has ever cut a check for a player. I don't think he's ever given a bag of cash to a player because he's smart enough to know and he's got a system in place, which if you heard Jimbo, the full press conference, he alluded to where people learn from. And it's interesting that a lot of the coaches that Nick Saban named, Jimbo, he named Miami. Mario Cristobal spent time on his staff. Jimbo spent time in his staff. Like those were guys that he called out that I'm sure Nick knows, you know, learned under him. So he never bought a player, but Alabama definitely has. And he's got a plausible deniability because Nick Saban is a very smart man. He's not going to get taken down because of some violation. But there are people set, there are things set in motion, people in place so that he can deny it. But to sit there and basically paint a bullseye on your chest the way Saban did, claiming I've always done things the right way and I've never bought a player, I think it's going to set him up to be a target now that you've already heard several players, former players, say what their offers were to go to Alabama. And I don't know why Nick Saban went down this road because I think it opens up a chance to smear his legacy as the greatest coach of all time. Josh? Danny, I mean, here's the way I perceived it. So, I mean, we've all been around this game for quite a while. I almost think there's like a recalibration of sorts if these guys have been in the game for a while. And it's kind of like, like, Jason, if you and I get on 65 right now and we're going south and we're doing like 78 and a 70, we don't really view ourselves as speeding. We are, by the letter of the law, but we're not viewing ourselves as speeding. Now, if the crotch rocket goes by us at 110, we look at that guy and we say, that dude's speeding. Well, I'm a hypocrite. So am I. I almost think that guys, maybe even like Nick Saban, who have been in the game a long time, I think they look at what they've done for a long time as the 78 and the 70, and they look at NIL as the 110 and the 70, and he says, look, this is not sustainable. We cannot function as a sport like this. And when there's pushback, it probably almost takes him back because he, what, what is this pushback? It's because they've, they've recalibrated what they view as acceptable and not acceptable. And it's just that what he's looking at right now happen is the whole collective world and the NIL world and it being packaged in the recruiting process instead of once you get on campus, which is the way NIL is technically supposed to work, uh, that's a whole new world. And man, there's so many chapters and so many layers of it that it's going to be really messy. And I'll tell you what I took away more so than them jawing at each other and going after each other's throats was they both agreed on one of the most important points in the room. And that is both of them called for federal antitrust help. Both of them called on it. You didn't hear it in the headlines yesterday because it's not sexy and not attractive, but they both said, Nick Saban, Wednesday night, Jimbo, Thursday morning, we got to get the federal government in here because we know our governing body has no power to legislate and no power to really enforce any guidelines in this thing. And so if they get the federal government involved, what are they hoping? That some rules and regulations come down that govern college football? I think they're hoping the rules that are currently in place that can't be enforced under threat of lawsuit if you get antitrust protection are able to be enforced. Because right now, I mean, you're looking at an NCAA that managed to get a 9-0 SCOTUS decision. 
slapped upside their head, which I thought was impossible this day and age, but they got 9-0 from SCOTUS. And everybody, if you talk to them around the NCAAs, is terrified to move on their own rules right now. So there's a thought out there that you can do whatever you want to. The cop car has flat tires on it. Drive as fast as you want to. They've got the blue lights on top of the car, but there's no threat of them chasing us. There's no threat of them doing anything to us. And they're thinking right now, the only body in this country that has any shot of helping us govern is not in Indianapolis. Unfortunately, it's in Washington, D.C. That's the hope. How realistic it is is a whole other conversation. That's the hope. Danny, one of my takeaways is that particularly Texas A&M is a threat to Alabama because they reside in Texas. And all that oil money and super wealthy boosters, I don't think Nick Saban believes he can compete with that in Alabama. And so his whole system has been disrupted. And if it's just about spending money and NIL deals, he's gonna lose out to Texas A&M and in a year or two, or whenever Texas comes, to Texas. And so this is about competition more than disrespect for Jimbo Fisher or even a Deion Sanders. I think you nailed it. Uh, For 15 years, Nick Saban has had a stranglehold in the recruiting scene. I mean, that was basically how he turned around Alabama, was amassing the best classes year in and year out. And as great as a coach he is, I think his true legacy is being the greatest recruiter, the greatest collector of talent that we've seen in the game. And he absolutely feels threatened by that. And I think it's very interesting. Again, the two schools that he called out, Dion's one thing. I think that's just a, a kind of a throw in. Here's a, but Dion may not be at Jackson State for long. He may be somewhere else. But Jimbo at Texas A&M, you mentioned Texas. They're also paying players. He didn't, you know, they've got some incredible recruits coming. But Miami with a billionaire booster and John Ruiz, who the deal that he referenced is one of those specifics that there were deals, there were numbers put to it. And he sees what Mario Cristobal is doing on the football scene. And I think he sees threats coming from all over the place. So I think it was one, he's trying to at least alert it so he can go back. And he even had another weird comment a week ago about we need to bring back parity, which was kind of comical because there's never been parity in college football, especially at Alabama, where you have almost every edge that you can find in the game. So I do think there is something to Nick Saban feeling that his you know, firm grasp on having control of everything, he's losing it slowly and he's trying to make sure that it doesn't go away completely. The only thing I think, I'm going to argue for Nick Saban here a little bit and say, because you argued he's the greatest recruiter, Nick Saban believes he and his system are the greatest developers of football talent. He believes he goes and tells recruits, look, you can go there, but our practices, our system, we will make you an NFL player. You can go some, you know, he's seen four and five star guys go other places and he says, no, drop your four or five star in my system, we'll put you in the NFL. And he he feels like this NIL thing has just blown up his recruiting pitch. And I think that's right. I mean, there's no doubt he's a great. So that's the pairing of why he's the greatest coach of this generation, because he's got great talent and then he develops that talent. I'm not saying he doesn't do anything with the talent that comes there. But in college football, where there is no salary cap, you can create, you know, last year, his roster 
was 84% of it was made up of four and five star players. And if you took out the specialists, the kickers and punters, it was 90%. Every single time he steps out in the field, I shouldn't say every single time because it wasn't against Georgia, who he lost to in the national championship game. But 98% of the time, Nick Saban has stepped on the field. He has had a talent edge, which you can only find in college football. You don't see that at the NFL. And I think that's where he feels vulnerable is that edge is getting cut into. Any chance, Josh, that Nick Saban's looking and saying, well, if, if nothing changes, I got to leave Alabama and go someplace else with more money. Maybe I should have Lincoln Riley going to USC. Maybe I need to go someplace with more money. Cause Auburn may have more money to spend than, than Alabama. And, and maybe that's what's so upsetting. What, what is the guy, 65-ish? 71 this year. Oh, 71, yeah. And if, you know, he probably thought, man, I can ride this out for another five or six years. And, and that's all being blown up. Any chance he could, if nothing changes, he could leave Alabama? I think the answer is yes, he could. And I don't think his destination would be another sideline. I think his destination would be behind a desk like you are right now, because talking to a lot of folks in the coaching industry, college, basketball and football, they see what's happening mainly in the NFL right now. But everyone understands the revolution over the next half decade to decade, whether it's the SEC, Big Ten, all these conferences are up for TV renewals, or either they just had them, and there are billions with a B on the line, just like there are in the NFL. And so these guys are not dumb. They know they're making eight to nine million dollars and working, what, 80, 100 hour weeks, and they look at offers on the table from all the networks, and they say, I could probably double my salary, I could fractionally work like I do now, and I could just talk about this game like we do right now in an air-conditioned studio, instead of actually at 70, 71 years old, having to learn an entire new way of doing things. I think what you just saw in college basketball with Jay Wright and with Mike Krzyzewski and a lot of guys simultaneously kind of saying, we're out of here. I think there's going to be a wave of that and it may not just be saving. It wouldn't shock me and I'm, I'm not hearing anything along these lines. I'm just saying it wouldn't shock me if you checked your, your iPhone one day and all of a sudden Dabo Swinney's up and said, I'm done with it too. I've, I've made a small fortune. I'll go sit in a TV studio. I think there's a wave of that coming in this sport if nothing changes. Well, Danny, and obviously you and I have been in the broadcasting business for a long time. Fox Sports just paid uh, Tom Brady 30-some-odd million a year. Nick Saban is the Tom Brady of college football. Mm -hmm. he, he can probably get 20, 25 somewhere. Am, am I right? Yeah, I think you. Uh, it might be a little on the high side. Just college football doesn't command as high of salaries yet. But Kirk Herbstreit's starting to crush it now. He's got to deal with Amazon, which is NFL, but ESPN has brought him along to be at you know up, upper tier of broadcasters. I'll take it further. Josh Pate said sitting behind a desk. I'll say he's sitting on the college game day desk. I mean, I feel like that's yeah. the fit. The show has gotten a little bit stale. They're trying to compete with the new Fox show. Lee Corso's getting up there in age. You wonder how many years he's got left in him. I wouldn't be surprised at all. If this is Nick Saban's last year and the following year, he's on the college game day set with the fellas there talking about college football. And the salary probably is one of those ones because just he would reset the market similar to the way Tony Romo reset the market for the NFL broadcasting you know, scale. 
So when you say those numbers, I'm a little bit taken aback, but everyone was floored when Tony Romo all of a sudden signed a deal for $180 million. I think Nick Saban, being the coach that he is and the stature that he is, could basically go to ESPN and say, this is my number, and ESPN would write the check. Wow. I, I, I really and, – and to me, that would explain him going nuclear. Yeah. That, that the reason he hit that button is because he's ready to eject. That, that, that's the only explanation. He, he has, the college football world, his peers hate him right now. Uh, and he doesn't care because he'll go sit behind a desk, make 20 million and talk about him and say whatever he wants about him. That, and, and he's, I, you know, I, I would have seen this more clearly. I'm so glad you made this point. I would have seen it more clearly if he had been a player. Yeah, because it's like when Richard Sherman does did his act. I was like, oh, he's trying to set himself up for a career. Patrick Beverly last week on ESPN or this week on ESPN is basically trying to set up his post career. Nick Saban just set up his post career. He, how old is Lee Corso? By he's like, hey, Nick Saban could do that for another ten years. Yeah, he could, and I, so I think the way he positions himself right now. I think it's authentic, whether you agree with his, his stance or not. I think it's authentic. He feels the way he does. I don't think he wants to leave the game right now, but I think he's comfortable enough in his legacy that he views it as an A-B scenario. Either A, things change, I get it the way I want it, I'll stick around another five years, or B, things don't change, I'm comfortable, I've done what I need to do here. And then as Danny talked about there, you've got multiple perfect landing spots and it's really interesting. Danny mentioned that Saturday morning window, that college game day window. Danny and I are on the road a lot. Sometimes we're at the same games. And if you're around that Saturday setup, it's not college game day ruling the world like it used to be. It's, it's a whole lot more saturated. Fox has got a show, but you've also got some of the alternative media like Barstool out there. They've got shows and they're in the market. They are coming to the scene of the game. And so I felt the way Danny feels for a while. Sort of needs to be a reset button hit on that production. It's still number one. It just doesn't dominate like it used to. If you added Nick Saban to the lineup, whenever it happens, this year or five years from now, uh, that will, like he said, it will totally reset the market. So, Danny, uh, where do we go from here? What happens with this name, image, and like? Do you see the federal government getting involved? Do you ever see the NCAA or college sports figuring out what to do because the the other thing that I think is at play here that, that's not being discussed is like name image and likeness I think has made coaching much much harder and so we're talking about recruiting but Nick Saban knows and he can't talk about it because he doesn't want to piss his players off but it's much harder to control manipulate develop your players when they're all making a fortune, a small fortune, and feels like a major fortune to them. Where do you think this ends up five years from now? Will we still be dealing with name, image, and likeness, or will college sports figure out a way to get their arms around this? So it's, it's a question that I talk about almost three hours a day on my you know show on Sirius XM about where's the future headed. And to be fair, and I, I, Josh alluded this too, I do think there is a place in Nick Saban's heart of authenticity that is concerned about college football. I am. I think Josh is too. A lot of college football fans, traditional college football fans, are wondering what all of this means. 
And I think there's a concern of, man, is this going to ruin the game? Is this going to ruin what we all love about the sport? And I think it's a valid concern. I played college football, then played the NFL. They are different products. When you lost in college, it felt like somebody died. We We cried in the locker room. We did not recover until we got on the field again. In the NFL, you lose a game. It's where's my check and where are we going after the game? It's not the same passion, not the same energy. And I see some of that slowly creeping in already from the mindset of some of these players where they do want to transfer and they do uh, have an easy out. And they're not there's not a brotherhood that there used to be to your question about where's the game in five years. Um, I think name, image and likeness is going to go away and it's just going to be called what they call the NFL. They're marketing deals. But you know, I ultimately think that college, that players will be paid as employees in some sh- some shape or form or fashion. Especially, Josh referenced it, the CODIS, the N- uh, the SCOTUS, the NCA versus Austin case. And if you read Brett Kavanaugh's statement specifically, it was a scathing indictment of the NCA, saying this is not American. This cannot happen. You cannot set them. You cannot restrict your late your workforce. Um, you cannot not pay them. You can't set the wages and let them earn what their their fair market value. So I think somebody and I if you ask me who it was, I would guess Greg Sankey. Maybe he leads the charge and he's not a commissioner, but he kind of takes the bull by the horns. Maybe it's the the college football playoff, which in itself is a business entity. It's not a oh, this is a fun playoff. It's a money-making venture that is paired with ESPN. Maybe it's them that takes the bull by the horns, but somebody is going to grab the schools that want to move this thing forward. Maybe it's 40 programs. Maybe it's 50. Maybe it's 64, and it's the clean power five, and they're going to separate. It's going to be college football in its own entity. They're going to figure out a way to pay the players, and when they do, and it comes with a lot of consequences. I'm not just flippantly saying this is what we should do, but this is what I think happens. And then NIL deals just become marketing deals. Like that's truly what they should be. And that was the idea. But you'll have players will be employees instead of student athletes. Danny, I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know you play a little golf today. You probably need to go take a shower. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Charlie Ward's back up on this show. We, I don't think we could have asked for a better guest. Uh, I Josh, appreciate I it, man. That's, turn... that's the best title I've got. Charlie's the best, man. He's a great human <laughs> being. I'll take that title all day. See you guys. Good being on. You got it. All right. See you, brother. Same question to you. Where, where do you see this <laughs> heading? Where, where are we at in five years? This is going to be such a huge topic for you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to very, very quickly escape just the boundary of college football. Because there are a lot of people waving the free market flag right now over the sport of college football and they're doing it in the name of players rights and they have no clue what they're asking for in my opinion they have no clue what they're asking for you know in nashville right now we've got city ordinances we've got codes but then we also got like natural parks and preserves that we have set aside as a city and we've said you know what we don't want this little patch of land over here to operate under the same governance the rest of the city does because the city would just swallow it up so we like this little thing over here as it is which is essentially what college football powers that be are asking for in the name of antitrust if they don't get it then we move forward in a true free market sense like danny just talked about now it sounds good the people who are fighting the fight of NIL and players' rights, it sounds great to them until you find out what the free market's about. Until you find out that if, like Danny just said, the most likely scenario ends up that 
college football kind of coalesces into a very, very power premier league type group of whether it be 32 or 64 teams and they govern themselves. Has anyone thought about what that does to Title IX? Has anyone thought about what that does to non-revenue generating sports when you're not subsidized anymore by these revenue producing entities because they're not of you anymore? They're essentially licensing that script day at Alabama. They're essentially playing for rent in Bryant-Denny Stadium, but that's not Alabama football, student athlete, amateurism, old school model. So in the name of fighting for a few thousand, several hundred to a few thousand players' rights, you are now sacrificing tens of thousands of scholarship opportunities for also very low income and underprivileged folks that would have gone on to play anything from swimming to track, track and field, field. etc. So I don't ask about so much what will happen if you just let it ride. I ask, what is for the greater good? Like, what are we trying to serve overall there? Because I think it extends a lot beyond college football, but I'll tell you, when I, when I said this is going to blend into a lot of your content, the minute you get antitrust, I had a bunch of folks yesterday call me when I said it on my show. They said, Josh, you know the minute antitrust gets involved, you are going to have folks who otherwise couldn't care less about college football get their toe dipped into the world of college football, and they're going to yell in the nearest megaphone, you're targeting young black kids, and you're trying to keep money from them in the name of you know, keeping things codified as they always have been. And while that may not be the case, if you structure it right, they told me, and they're right, that has a face. That argument's gonna have a face. What face does your argument have? And that's why instead of bickering back and forth, if Saban and Jimbo Fisher, Greg Sankey, all these leaders claim to be about the same end goal of making sure you got some structure in the sport, and you claim you need Congress involved, you better not be name calling in the media because if Congress looks down and sees that that's what you're about and there's no united front down there, who in the world's gonna be motivated to help college football? Man, you've said so much there and it's, you know, I call the other sports welfare sports. Yeah. And, and, and it, it sounds derogatory and derisive and it is, but it's really, I say it just for perspective, that because, and, and I don't want to draw you into the political aspects of it, but again, it's like the woke are very good at tearing down. I haven't seen them be good at building up. And so it's like what, what you're gonna see in the whole art, we gotta pay the pay the pay the pay the system, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, if there's no thought yeah. behind it, all you're going to do is tear down the current system and you're going to leave a path of destruction in your wake. And so these same woke people that love the fact that women's college basketball has been subsidized and been able to grow and grow a following. Women's soccer. What happens to, if they don't, if they, women's tennis. I, I can think of all these sports that without football, they just disappear, and so you're, the whole Title IX deal has been living off of football, and that's where I, I've been, my whole argument about like, why are y'all trying to tear down football? Right? Don't y'all know how many miles? That's daddy, he, he, he's out earning for everybody, so everybody can have something to eat, and, and we've spent all this time trying to tear it down, and that's, that's where I do blame the NCAA's lack of vision and leadership, I can go back 15 years, maybe 20, things that I was writing, ideas like, here's how you get your arms around paying athletes. 
uh, a particular, the ones that bring that extra value, because I don't think all the athletes should be paid. I think a scholarship for the overwhelming majority of them is payment enough. It was for me. Uh, I left school without any debt. That put me ahead of all of my peers, virtually, they graduated with me. Uh, but Josh, man, you've done a wonderful job. Uh, I can't wait to hear your approval score on uh, Nick Saban. <laughs> uh, but before we get there, I want to uh, tell you about my good friends at Good Ranchers. Summer is almost here, and do you know what you need? Juicy, charbroiled, over an open flame, burgers. Now, I don't know, Don, I don't mean just any burgers. I mean American Wagyu burgers made from some of the best beef you've ever tasted in your life. Our friends over at Good Ranchers are here to help provide the great food that is needed to have a great time. Good Ranchers American Wagyu is raised right here in the United States and produces the rich buttery texture that people who know their steaks crave. These burgers are individually wrapped so you can easily pull them out and cook them on the grill or in the skillet and they're good for other meals too. With meat prices soaring, I love that when you subscribe, you lock in your price and get $25 off every box for the life of your subscription. As long as you're subscribed, your price will not change. Two pounds of free Wagyu burgers and zero inflation? What are you waiting for? Go get both by using my code FEARLESS or by visiting goodranchers.com fearless you don't buy the meat in your house, then tell the person who does to grab your two free pounds of American Wagyu burgers today before they're gone. Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. All right, Josh, little game we love to play here. Approval rating, whoever our big topic of the day. We grade them in four categories, job performance, character, authenticity, and it factor on a scale of zero to 25. We add all four numbers up. That's their approval score. Uh, job performance, Nick Saban, he didn't win the national championship last year, so there's no way I can give him the uh, perfect score. He wouldn't give himself a perfect score. He didn't win the national title. Georgia, didn't Georgia win the national title? They did, indeed. Right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to give him a 24. Okay. So I think um, in realistic terms and not so much idealistic terms, I don't think it's possible to do anything better than he's been able to do. Also, I thought Kirby we, Smart would disagree with well, you Well, Kirby just did it one time. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's, let's grade on the curve here. Right. I also got a full disclosure with you. I thought we had to be divisible by five, or I probably would have given a 24 too. So I go one higher than you. I go 25. But I, I understand the 24. Who explained the game to you? <laughs> I interpreted it. Oh. I interpreted the game the wrong no, way. It's, it's any score between 0 and 25, uh, divisible by 5. I wonder why you thought that. I'll have to ask you that. All right, character. Uh, I find Nick Saban to be a high-character person. Uh, I, yeah, I find him to be a high-character person. And I really don't have a problem with him snapping like this and calling people out. At least it's authentic. So I'll give him a 23 in character. Now, hold on. So I went lower than this, but you told me Nick is lying is what NIL stands for, and I went lower than you did. Uh, that's going to affect his authenticity score. Oh, that's coming score. up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, now that I see ahead a little bit. Okay. So yeah. I went 20, yeah. and I went 20 with character because not so much what I feel, but I think what a lot of folks feel. I'm trying to speak for a lot of people right yeah. now. I don't think they view him as... Supreme character, maybe high character, but not supreme character. But I'll tell you what a lot of folks go back on. They, they have the ability to go back further than just the past 48 hours. 
And if you look at some of the best sound bites out there for giving guys second chances and whatnot in college football, it's been Nick Saban. And I can tell you, I've had families uh, down in Columbus, Georgia, where I came from. Alabama recruits that area a lot. And I've had families down there at Carver High School, Hardaway High School. They've said, you know what matters most to us in recruiting? It's when someone plays that soundbite for us and we play it for our son and he hears this guy who's, who doesn't look anything like him and he's from a different generation than him and yet he says, no one wants to stand up for kids and give them second chances when they screw up. Well, I will. I've had so many people tell me that goes further than anything in recruiting. So I give a 20 for character. Um, I'm knocking him because I think some other people are knocking him right now. Mm. So you're letting others influence your opinion. That's exactly stay off Twitter, what's Josh. happening. Stay off, stay off Twitter. Authenticity. This is where the NIL Nick is lying comes in for me. I, I, th- we don't pay a player at, at Alabama. Did, I, didn't Bryce Young make like a million bucks? And I know that's after he got mm-hmm. on the campus, but that's just like a semantical game. You can't tell me those kids down at Alabama. So, I, you know, sometimes, Nick, and you got to be inauthentic in, in recruiting a lot of times, in my view, to win. So I give him a 10 in authenticity. So I gave him a 20 here. I would ask this. How, how do you manage to be 100% authentic in that business? I mean, when a live microphone's in your face, if you were to just tell the truth all the time, how long could you realistically survive in that business if you just said everything that's on your mind and some people claim they do, but even those people really don't. Because if they did, you would burn so many bridges so quickly, and you'll be ostracized from all the important circles you need to be in so quickly that you'd be done. So I understand what you're saying, but I graded it on an inverse curve there, and I went up to 20. Well, Bobby Knight's probably the last guy with a high-profile coach that actually <laughs> said everything he thought, and his era is over. You're right. Uh, it factor, uh, you know. I've never stood directly next to Nick Saban, but he's too short for me to give him a huge, huge high it factor. Uh, You know, I think women love him, uh, but that's because he wins. Uh, And he does command a room, but that's because he wins. Uh, (laughs) He is a magnetic uh, recruiter, but that's because he wins and he gets guys in the NFL. So I give him a 20 in it factor. Uh, I see you went perfect. I went perfect score. I'm glad you mentioned the stature, though. So the first time I ever got to go cover an Alabama game, I was in their post-game presser. And I remember everyone's talking. I mean, you've been in there a million times. Everyone's talking, talking, and door opens, he walks in the room. And I had never seen a group of grown men just sit up at attention when a guy who's 5'5 or 5'6 walks in the room (laughs) before. And, And that stuck with me. And I've been around him a lot. We've been able to interview him a few times. There's no one else in college athletics. There are a few people in pro sports who command the room when they walk in, like he does. And I think it's more impressive because he's not 6'5". He's not a former All-American, and yet he does it anyway due to nothing the good Lord gave him in terms of physical stature, but totally what the good Lord gave him from the neck up that he's fully leveraged to his, I think, maximum potential. So I gave yeah. him 25. I. I- you know, and I was thinking of Bill Belichick. He was talking about a guy that can come in and control the room and, and just because their aura is so big. And Bill Belichick does it with man boobs. Yeah. Which inspires me. It makes me know that I still have a chance. All right. Uh, so uh, I have him at a 77 overall, a smoke show. Josh has him at blazing hot. Uh, Josh, I got to say this. You knocked it out of the park. I appreciate this it. Was fabulous. Go check him out at 24-7. That, 
CBS Sports, mm -hmm. my actor. Uh, Josh is one of the best things going in college football, and you just found out why. Uh, get your fearless army swag at shopblazemedia.com. Uh, Waste white. Let's roll out to uh, Minneapolis and bring in uh, Royce White, the smartest man on the show. <laughs> Royce, uh, it seems like you're starting to warm up to Elon Musk uh, based on my following of, of, of your tweets. Uh, that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Elon Musk has come out of the closet and talked about, I think he tweeted about how he used to vote for Democrats thought they were kind, but you know, now he's flipping and he's gonna vote uh, for Republicans. And, and is it, what's going on with you? You've been very skeptical of Elon, but I think you're starting to warm up, am I right? Well, absolutely. Um, and, and one of the first times I was on the show, it, you remember I said that the two, the two real issues aren't, aren't the, the polarizing extremes of the political spectrum. The real threat are the centrists. Uh, the purveyors of the status quo. And in politics, this has come to be known as the establishment uniparty. Um, and, and the left has hijacked the status quo, and they plan to keep it through an ever-expanding middle of identity politics. And those two identities are going to be the ever-expanding definition of, of gender, and the other is the ever-expanding definition of sexual misconduct. And anytime the left goes after one of these powerful, competent uh status quo challenging men with with sexual misconduct allegations uh, i start to root for you because it's a it's a telltale sign uh, a old an old trick uh, that that's used to try and assassinate people's character when when they don't agree with the establishment yeah and they've hit him with these allegations and said something about he allegedly paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars to quiet two hundred fifty thousand dollars that's like saying he paid twenty five dollars uh, to put a Me Too situation away, I'm just not buying that story. But but yeah. as it relates to as it relates to Musk, and and the pivot that I think is going on that has me hopeful is I've seen a lot of people, uh, and I've been making this argument to friends of mine who have not been believers. I was like, I'm going to tell you, as things keep playing out, you're going to see that the other side is evil and satanic. And it's going to open your eyes to the fact that God and a return to the biblical principles that we were founded upon in this country is the only solution. So you may not be a believer today, but as things continue to play out, it's gonna become crystal clear to you that there's only one solution, God, and that the other side is driven by a satanic energy that you will not be able to deny. And that's what I think is going on with Elon Musk. Yeah, well, I'm hopeful. Um, all, all signs uh, point in, in a good direction. I think that Elon Musk is on his way to being born again, you could say. Um, and again, I'm not so concerned about 
whether or not people believe in God, because their your faith and, and the, the level of your faith and the, the discipline or the, the, the sanctity of, of your relationship between yourself and God is personal anyway. Um, but if people act as though they believe in God, that's a great start. And, and, and those are two different things. Acting as though you believe in God and, and actually having a profound faith uh, are separate issues. And, and if Elon Musk, uh, a person in his position that, that has the influence that he has, behaves as though he believes in God and believes in Judeo-Christian values, uh, then he will act as though he believes in this country. And, and ultimately, there'll be a net positive result. Well, my argument has been is that if you're smart and authentic, you will eventually figure out, and I think the same thing's going on with Bill Maher. I believe Bill Maher is smart and I believe he's authentic. I don't know if he'll ever be a believer, but I do think he's smart enough to figure out that a lot of the values that he values, freedom of speech, are a byproduct of a Judeo-Christian culture. And so even if he doesn't believe, he's gonna say, you know what, Judeo-Christian culture serves me better than secular culture where man has appointed himself God and then starts to impose man's will on me rather than God's will. That's where I, I think, I look at Elon Musk and I, Bill Maher, I look at them the same. Hey, these guys are smart. They seem to have some authenticity to them. Over time, they'll figure it out that even though if they're not religious, they all understand that a, a faith-based country actually works for everyone. Uh, I 100% agree. And, and I, I think that this latest attack on Elon to, to circle back to these, these Me Too allegations, you know, I, I think the entire Me Too movement and, and the, the, the women's liberation movement and, and the suffrage movement and, and the white liberal woman has been manipulated as well by Satan and, and by a, a very high level, high skilled spiritual force. But but we do have a crisis of femininity and, and these attacks on men are going to continue to pop up. Um, and, you know, the, the angle of the attack is not even so much to to say that Elon Musk is guilty. It's actually to use the mainstream media and French fry politics and yellow journalism to assassinate Elon's character uh, with, with a wider public. And, and, you know, Elon Musk may decide he wants to run for president here in the future. I don't know why he would do it. And he's the richest man on the planet, he doesn't really need to. Certainly, our political landscape allows somebody of that wealth to have just as much influence on policy and politics in this country as, as if he were actually elected to office. Um, but, but, but my point is that the Judeo-Christian way, the, the premium on truth, the premium on morals and ethics and what is truth, how does one find truth, how does one acquire truth from a philosophical standpoint, these all stem from a Judeo-Christian value uh, structure as well. Uh, Aristotelian thought and, 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 and St. Thomas Aquinas and epistemology, all of these things stem from a Judeo-Christian value structure and, and historical context. So these things need to be applied to the Me Too movement as well. As you know, the other thing that makes me hopeful, uh, Royce, is that someone like Elon Musk can be a tastemaker because, you know, we value wealth so much in this culture and country that we make idols of the wealthy. And so 
unfortunately, but it's the reality. Elon Musk is an idol and seeing him break away from the corporate pre-approved faults of social media and the people currently in power leaves me that he's going to inspire other men and other people that he's actually being rebellious. He's the actual cool person and we may, he may uh, provoke a pivot point where we'll start seeing other people and I'm hoping uh, professional athletes and other tastemakers and influencers, someone is gonna finally figure out like, you know, supporting everything that Twitter says I should support doesn't make me cool. It makes me part of the go along, get along gang, makes me part of groupthink. If I actually wanna be rebellious, it's actually someone like Elon Musk who's being rebellious. Absolutely, I, I think the uh, over the last forty to fifty years, uh, the the prevailing thought on on who is actually anti-establishment has has changed drastically, and and it's changed for the worse. Um, you know, it used to be that that people believed that the government or that certain institutions within our country and around the world, corporations, for example, had created a status quo that people wanted to break away from. And, and that had a lot to do with race and the civil rights era and, and you know, the, the suffrage movement, LGBTQ, whatever you want to say those civil rights movements were. Uh, and over time and into the, the present, it's certainly the case that all of the corporations that we used to think had had uh, subversive and, and selfish and anti-human sentiments at their core have become the, the very institutions that set the status quo and have, have set the culture. And they've done it through the music industry. They've done it through Hollywood. They've done it through professional sports. They've done it through other public figures and politicians. And and it's way, way over on the left. And, and I even, you know, recently turned on Kendrick Lamar's uh, latest album and, and heard him going for the wokeism. And, and, you know, they got him too, right? And you're talking about the guy who was pro-black and, you know, now he's saying that my friend who used to be a man actually is a woman now. And, you know, this, this, this entire LGBTQ thing is way out of control. And that, the ever-expanding definition of gender and the ever-expanding definition of sexual misconduct are at the heart of, of what the left has tried to set as, as the mainstream culture. And both of them are faulty in, in their premise. They're, they're, they're completely unwarranted in their foundation. Royce, I, I wanna let you out of here on this note, but we just had a discussion about the name, image, and likeness and uh, Nick Saban and his attacks on Jimbo Fisher and Deion Sanders and uh, Miami and just, just Former college athlete, I was just wanted to give you an opportunity. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on this dispute or where college sports are headed, but I wanted to give you a chance to chime in. Well, certainly I do. I think, you know, we, we, we are living in a time where um, there are many unintended outcomes, many unintended consequences to new policies that are implemented. And, and I can speak to that one as an athlete, but also as somebody who aspires to hold political office and to think about the implications of policy. And, you know, it, it used to be way off base when a college coach would make $7 million and the kids, the, the student athletes were living in abject poverty, right? And, and they couldn't even get a, a ride across campus 
from a team manager to class after coming from a practice in a place like Minnesota in the dead of winter, right? So that was way off base to begin with. Um, but but now we're seeing with the NIL that there, there are unintended consequences of schools, universities doing exactly what the NBA and professional sports try to do, and that's cheat their way to win. And they're going to try and cheat their way to win by paying. Um, and, and there were always kids who, who got offers for money, substantial money, five-figure, six-figure money to go to certain schools. Um, and, and I'm happy that we no longer live or, or, or have a college landscape where athletes have to do that in private because I think that athletes should be paid. Uh, and I, but I also think that now we're going to start to see what a free market um, snafu looks like with, with professional sports working its way into the college landscape. Because you're going to have coaches, you know, that have to deal with higher ups in the athletic department or in the booster club who are going to say, hey, we're paying this kid a lot of money. You need to play him. But that coach is not going to want to play him. And there are kids and there have always been kids who took money to go to a school and they never actually even played. Certainly didn't pan out at the level of whatever dollar amount that they received. And that's going to start to happen now, even just because it's official doesn't mean that's going to change. People are going to receive money, NIL deals, money from boosters and trust funds and all of that stuff. And coaches are going to say, hey, I'm not playing this kid because he's bad for our culture. Um, and and there are going to be uh, stories that play out of schools making decisions to fire coaches because they wouldn't play or, uh, you know, wouldn't adhere to whatever the commercial structure, the new commercial structure is around. And in the adverse, there are going to be players there are going to be players that that switch schools, that transfer, that 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 seek free agency. You could say based on on wanting to uh, to 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 get a profit, and it's just an entirely new landscape. So I think there are a lot of unintended consequences, but but ultimately it'll work itself out. And the teams that the teams that are good, the coaches that are good, the teams that have good culture, just as you see in the NBA and professional sports, nine times out of ten are going to be the teams that are successful. And the other one percent. Talent and circumstance may may win the day, but ultimately culture culture is the you know is the foundation that that breeds success. Thank you, Royce. Have an awesome weekend. Great job as always. Uh, go to YouTube.com/slash Jason Whitlock. Hit the notifications. Hit subscribe. Uh, if you're listening over Apple, hit me with that five star review. I think you guys have slowed down on giving me those five star reviews. We deserve it. Leave a comment. I'll read your comments uh, with your review on Apple. All right, uh, Delano Squires. Time for a little Professor D, Delano Squires, uh, the smartest man on the show. Damn it, I, I'm sorry I said that right after uh, Royce White was on the show, but Delano has written a column uh, that, oh man, it's one of my favorite columns he's ever written because it's exactly uh, what I've been thinking and thinking about. Uh, have black churches abandon biblical teachings for political treasure. And Delano gets into the whole, the Washington Post wrote an article about Roe v. Wade and how black churches feel about it. And 
uh, it quotes a bunch of female ministers and maybe one or two uh, male ministers, but it starts talking to some female black minister and she says something crazy. And I, you know, I'm gonna go to this first. This isn't, this is the Washington Post story. Uh, this, this isn't a quote from someone in the story. This is what the Washington Post wrote, this first quote. Uh, While many conservative white evangelicals rejoiced after the draft opinion was revealed, and they, they're talking about the Roe v. Wade draft, uh, the reception in black churches has often been more complicated. Some leaders of black churches say they can't help viewing the debate through a racial lens. Black women are more likely to have abortions, according to Kaiser Family Foundation data, while government reports show they are also three times as likely as white women to die of pregnancy complications. Uh, Delano, I, I love where you went with this Washington Post article and using it as the jumping off point. It's a conversation I was having on Wednesday with uh, Pastor Anthony and Pastor Bobby about uh, racial idolatry. Uh, and and this we have a conversation about racism, but race mm. actually isn't a part of the Bible. Idolatry is. And I've been arguing for quite a while the black church has a racial idolatry issue. Nothing mm. could be more clear cut that than abortion is wrong from a biblical standpoint. There is no wiggle room on this issue. And so all you well, <laughs> we're going to put the Bible on the back burner for our political beliefs. Uh, anyway, I, I love your column. Please expound. Yeah, Jason. So it, it's the, the thing that's evident when you read it, right? As you said, you t the, it starts with a, a female pastor um, in Washington, D.C. And, and I say in my column, uh, I believe the scripture when it says that the office of pastor or elder or, or bishop or overseer or shepherd is reserved for qualified men. So I'm gonna put that out there from the beginning. That aside, this particular individual stated clearly like that her issues with the way abortion is framed are, um, they're mainly political issues, right? She, she says she's pro-life from a theological perspective, but not a political perspective, which really means she does not wanna be associated with white Christian conservative evangelicals. At the end of the day, that's her thing, and that, that that theme came up over and over again in the article. One guy, when hearing, you know, Clarence Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, um, in one of his opinions on one of these abortion cases, who said the state has a compelling interest to not to ensure that abortion is not used as another form of eugenics. The pastor who's quoted after that says, "Well, he's he's being disingenuous if he really believed." In, in that, in, in uh, protecting babies and protecting life, how could he vote against pre-clearance for the Voting Rights Act? I said, but that's a very odd juxtaposition. But to these people, and, and Jason, I wanna be clear, I'm not saying that these views are representative of the black church. And you, you and I know what we mean when we say that, right? We're talking about churches who are drawn on a historical legacy. Um, we're, we're talking about the you know the hooping preacher the swaying choir in in the robe so it's it's not just any majority black church we're talking about churches who who are drawing on a long story tradition of black spirituality and uh, to be quite frank yes social activism but there was a time where 
that social activism was within the framework of biblical teaching and ethics. And what I'm seeing now, you know, more and more, more recently, um, is those two things, biblical ethics, whether it's on sex and sexuality or race, um, race and ethnicity, I'm seeing a split in those things where these churches, at least the, the people quoted in this piece, represent churches who think that HBCU funding and, and government spending on low-income women um, and all of the and voting rights are clear biblical teachings, but abortion is somewhat fuzzy and then they're not sure. And then I, I said in the piece, the, the worst, and this is really the, the death knell, is when they quoted a pastor, um, he's from down south, who they also said sits on Planned Parenthood's clergy advocacy uh, board or whatever. And I clicked through, I found a video that those, that that advocacy group put, put out, and it had two black pastors, and one of whom used the language of, you know, when we argue or we advocate for reproductive justice, we're, we're you know, we're, um, he talked about compassion and all this other stuff, and I said, these guys need to repent because they are committing a grievous sin by, by instead of rebuking Planned Parenthood, which is what they should be doing, they are standing with Planned Parenthood and in many ways are like those Negro preachers that Margaret Sanger said she needed in order to, um, to implement her strategies of population control in the black community. Delano, this whole situation brings to a head an argument that, that, that I've been making forever and it's my frustration with the black church and and i am going to generalize a, probably a bit more than you because i'm glad the washington post wrote this story because mm. i think it's indicative of much of the so-called black church we are not th those churches aren't preaching christianity anymore they're preaching democratic politics. That's mm. the only way, because I, when I hear a minister to me, and really any believer, but when you are, take on the role of church leader and pastor, there is no separation of theological view and political view, and you have one view, a theological one. And so anything that doesn't uh, coincide with the biblical worldview you toss aside as a believer, and but most especially as a leader of a church. And so when I hear someone say, well, you know, theologically I agree, but politically I don't, and so therefore, and again, what I thought the article, and I'm just glad it was written because it was honest, it was transparent, and it was uh, obvious. They talked about how abortion isn't really talked about in black churches. Right. Right. We've turned a blind eye to it. It's like, that ain't our issue. And just as you said, another female pastor, Lintesha Roberts Henley, listen to this quote from her. There are more pressing issues in the black community than abortion. So mm -hmm. just that first sentence, let me just say that, let me rephrase it. There are more pressing issues in the black community than the millions of black babies slaughtered in the womb every year. There are more pressing yeah. issues than that. 
Why are our black children still being murdered by police? Now, there, that happens at about 10, where it's a controversial one, maybe 10 times a year. And if we put the whole total together, it's about 400 times a year a policeman will kill a black person. So millions of black babies slaughtered in the womb, but <laughs> these 400 murders by the police, that's what we must address. That's the issue wrecking our neighborhoods. And at this, I think Lintesha is, she's in Dothlin, Alabama. What black communities in Dothlin, Alabama have, are having so many murders by police that that's more pressing than the murder we do amongst ourselves and yeah. the murders, the assisted suicides we do at Planned Parenthood. But let me continue with her other things that are more pressing than the slaughter of millions of black babies in the womb. Why are HBCUs still not being funded by the government the same way white schools are? I think we are logical enough to realize that if we spend too much time on stuff like this, this is just a distraction. Now yeah. she's gonna have to answer to God for this type yeah. of stupidity and depravity. Oh my God, millions of babies destroyed in the womb. That's nothing, that's a distraction. The government funding HBCUs, that should be top of mind for Christians. And I do, yeah. you know, I'm all for HBCUs. But, right. but a minister saying this, this is crazy. I mean, there's, there's so much going on in that quote. And as you said, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the Post wrote it. And Jason, I actually, I didn't see this um, story when it first came out. I actually saw it because I follow uh, a Twitter account called the Ann Campaign. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's an ampersand campaign. So they are um, sort of a, a, they brand themselves as a Christian political advocacy organization that is neither left nor right. Now, in my honest opinion, in functionally what they do is give left-leaning Christians um, cover for to vote for Democrats, right? Because what they try to do, and a lot of, I've been seeing this a lot in the, in the wake of the, the Roe leak, um, or the Dobbs leak, um, for that matter, is it's moved from pro-life being against abortion to now we're pro all of life. And that typically means exactly what I said in my column, a new form of family, the BLM approved form, which is a woman, her children, and the government, right? So the government is the new dad. There's no mention of black fathers, even in, in, this, in, this, in this column from the Washington Post, it's the same thing. And the Ann campaign quoted from this article and I took their quote as in somewhat of agreement. And that's what made me go on and read it. And, and I just, it, it really does show how theologically bankrupt many of these churches, black churches have become. And there are plenty of critiques about white conservative evangelicals and many of them have merit. So when Robert Jeffers, who's known as a conservative, a theologically conservative uh, pastor in Dallas, Texas, has his choir singing a MAGA hymn for when President Trump comes, I think that should be criticized. I think idolizing any person, any president, any Supreme Court justice um, is, is 
is sinful in God's house. That's that's what I believe. But what these churches are doing, and this is the sort of the mainstream black left leaning, uh, you know, church culture. Right. This is the the places that the, the, the preachers that we're talking about in this in this uh, post article are not um, extreme. They're not on the fringes. So if you go to any black city, Indianapolis, you know, Brooklyn, D.C., Philly, Atlanta, New Orleans, you're going to find these churches. They may have some of the same names. Right. Uh, uh, Abyssinian Missionary Baptist Church. So when you hear these people talking and they advocate for Planned Parenthood and all they talk about is more government funding and they waffle and equivocate on abortion and they say it's a distraction and they won't even mention anything about marriage, the nuclear family, biblical sexual ethics. It is a sign of a, of, of a culture, a cultural institution in deep decay. And actually the first woman that they quoted, Reverend, you know, the Reverend in, in DC. Cheryl, Cheryl Sanders, yeah. Yes, I, I did a little digging and she had a quote well, almost a decade ago when, when President Obama was, you know, considering supporting same-sex marriage, and she cautioned her, her peers against be, be basically becoming single-issue voters and ending up, you know, uh, in the camp of Republicans, similar to what some black pastors did with George W. Bush. So it's not just abortion. The worst thing, these people think that being associated with white evangelical conservatives is literally hell on earth. They do not want that penalty. They don't want to have to pay that price. So they would rather throw their lot in with the Marxist, feminist, lesbian, BLM leadership atheists. structure. Atheists, the ones who think that the black nuclear family should be um, uh, abolished and disrupted and dismantled and that you know women should have leadership in every area of society and transgender people should be affirmed in every area of society. These black churches would rather throw their lot in with the black BLM leadership class than they would stand arm in arm with their uh, white evangelical brothers and sisters. And in that way, you really see it clearly. For them, when they say the word brother, they mean black first and Christian second. Well, and I I've been saying this for years now, and that when you're getting all of your news translated to you by atheists, mm. by atheists. You know, I've said it to people in my family. You think Rachel Maddow's a Christian? Really? You, you think Don Lemon's a Christian? You think Anderson Cooper's a Christian? They got an LGBTQ God that has nothing to do with is being taught in your church. Mm. And so, when all of your news and your worldview is being interpreted by atheists. And again, I have friends who are atheists, who I love, I sincerely love, but I'm not catering my opinions to, 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 to coincide with theirs. They have to, just like I have to deal with them where they are, they have to deal with me where I am. I'm a Christian. And mm. if that puts me in league, with uh, right-wing people, I could care less. I'm gonna let God settle that, not the atheists on MSNBC and CNN, not right. Barack Obama. He doesn't get to judge who I'm in league with. I'm in league with other believers. 
And I will, they're sinful, just like I am, just like the people on the left are. But this, I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you found this article, wrote about it, pointed it out. It, it's, it's literally what I've been dying to talk about. And, and I just, mm. I want it all out in the open. The yes. black church has sold out God. And, and mm. I'm saying that in general, that's not all of them. But my God, it, it's, it, these people are quoted. I'll give you another one. I mean, this is the same female minister, Pastor Lintesha Roberts Henley, uh, down in Alabama. Uh, I grew up in the black church and we were always taught that murder is a sin. For a long time, I viewed it specifically as that. I realized that people have to make a choice that's best for their life, dependent upon what the situation and scenario is. That is how I became more open to people having the right to choose for themselves. Mm. Here's a minister. Mm. I grew up thinking murder was murder. I grew up thinking that going up inside of a woman and crushing a baby, I grew up thinking that was murder. But now I'm more enlightened. A minister. This is... Yeah. I mean, the, the abortion the, the is no longer the, the compromise is stunning. But, Jason, if if we really want to go there and I and I do think that this boil needs to be lanced and the and the pus needs to be squeezed out. If if we're if the body is ever going to to fully heal, many of these um, ministers probably see themselves as drawing on the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And the truth of the matter is that his perspective on family planning, and I'm, and I'm gathering this, and I said this in the piece, based on him being awarded by Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood, and reading his perspective, at that time he was talking about birth control, but really his perspective on seeing large families as an economic drag, particularly on you know low to middle income black folk, they're probably not that far off on where King was, or where King would have ended up. Because um, as much you know, respect as I have for Dr. King, and, and I do, because I do think he was one of you know, America's uh, greatest um, political figures, civic figures, I also have an understanding of his theology based on his words. And he, re he rejected the virgin birth, he rejected um, the doctrine of, of penal substitution, basically that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that those who repent and believe uh, benefit from his righteousness. He rejected that doctrine and he reject rejected some other core Christian doctrines. So when I think of Dr. King, I think of him as a civic and political leader, not as a religious leader who, who upholds biblical doctrine. Now, the way I, I reconcile that is saying basically this, if Joel Osteen was the pastor that delivered a nationwide abortion ban, I think that many Christians, conservative evangelical Christians, would look at him in the same way that many black Christians look at Dr. King, right? Or, or conservative Christians look at Dr. King, which is to say, I don't agree with his theology, but he delivered a political win that I think is completely in line with the scripture. And in that case, we'll take him. He's an imperfect vessel, as, our, you know, as, our, as we all are, but the, the contribution that he made, made to the body politic vis-a-vis -vis the scripture, 
right, in terms of protecting life, is one that, that we would take on. And that, that's how I view Dr. King, because in terms of his, you know, his, his doctrinal stances, um, they're not ones that I would consider biblical. Well, I, 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 and let's go all the way there. You, you, you're coming for, from a more <laughs> biblical perspective. I'm gonna come from a secular perspective and a man of the streets perspective. I, mm. I think Dr. King's uh, position on birth control was probably fueled by his own individual infidelity and mm. lack of discipline as it comes to sex. And mm. having struggled, having had that same struggle, I get. And then, you know, when you're celebrated the way he was and Nobel Peace Prize and, you know, that kind of popularity and seen as that important, you, you start bending the scripture to fit your lifestyle and the yes. decisions you made. And so if you're if you're out here banging uh, strippers and whores, uh, you know, while you're out on the road, yeah, you probably mm -hmm. do believe in birth control because you need it. Uh, you need condoms, birth controls, and perhaps abortions to protect your image. And then it's very easy for people to start seeing themselves like, oh my God, if I fall, if, if J. Edgar Hoover exposes the truth about me, it yeah. will undermine the civil rights movement. And so it, it becomes about protecting yourself because you've mm concluded you're so instrumental and uh, necessary for the, for the entire struggle that you, know, you start shaping the doctrine to fit your lifestyle, mm. and it's a mistake, and I got no problem calling him out on it because, again, I'm just like you. I respect yeah. Dr. King and what he delivered, uh, and, and I'll never back away from that, but he's a flawed man, and uh, you know, he clearly made some mistakes, and it's one of the reasons why, again, so transparently, and, and not put myself on any pedestal. And it's like with this whole fearless thing, it's why I want to build you up, and Royce up, and Dave Shannon, and Shamika, and TJ Moe, and Maj Torre, and whoever comes on this show, I want to build, every, so it's us and not me. And mm. uh, because any of us, are capable of falling, but Absolutely. I'm willing to bet we all won't fall. I, I'm, we right. all will not fall. Uh, and so if we can build some sort of movement, identity, uh, something that inspires men to rise up, even with your flaws, because again, Dr. King, no different than George Washington and Thomas mm -hmm. Jefferson and all them white dudes back, they're all flawed, they all made mistakes. But did they, again, just the argument you're making with Dr. King, he delivered something biblically sound, the civil rights movement that allowed for freedom and equality for a group of people here in this country. And we have to deal with his flaws and say, but wow, look what he delivered. No different than we have to do with Thomas Jefferson and those guys and their flaws and the mistakes they made. They delivered documents that raised up a great country that over the last 60, 70 years has done its best to deliver freedom and opportunity and as much yeah. equality as any country as we've ever seen. And I'm thankful for those guys the same way I'm thankful for Dr. King. And I'm thankful for you 
uh, for writing this column and giving me this opportunity to talk about this. And so let me let me go to my my final point that I was okay. carrying on with Bobby and Anthony on Wednesday, and and my contention is uh, Delano, and I don't know if you got to see Wednesday's show or t Wednesday's Tennessee Harmony, but but I I, I kept telling these guys and bringing up the point, idolatry is talked about a lot in the scripture, mm. in the Bible. It's a lot. And, and I've listened to Tony Evans, the, the great Tony Evans, do sermons on how idolatry is at the root of all sin. And I asked these guys on Wednesday because I authentically did not know. I was like, well, hold on, is race and racism talked about in the Bible. And Bobby and Anthony told me no, that there was a dispute between Jews and Gentiles, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, but race and racism is not a theme covered in the Bible. And so therefore I'm asking the question, why are we as Christians moving away from, because again, we acknowledge and promote that there's power in the gospel and that mm. uh, let's lean into the gospel and its ability to change things and change people. Why are we talking about racism that's not mentioned in the Bible and not mm. talking about idolatry because we have a racial idolatry issue. If I look at the white guy in Buffalo and his abhorrent violent behavior, that's racial idolatry. If I look at the black dude in Waukesha that ran over all them people, that's racial idolatry. We need to be talking about idolatry, but we spend all of our time talking about racism. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, uh, I, I would agree with the two pastors that racism as such is not mentioned. Partiality is, partiality is, is uh, mentioned in the scriptures as a sin, right? So treating uh, one person different than, than another. Now, sometimes that's, that's framed in economic terms, like treating the rich better than the poor. Uh, hatred obviously is. So there, there's certain elements of what we've traditionally thought of as racism that do appear in the scripture, but it, I'm glad you brought up the Jews and Gentiles because in the New Testament, um, in Ephesians, as Paul's you know, writing to, to you know, the early church, he talked about how far apart those two groups were but how they were reconciled together as believers, right? Those who believe and are now one in Christ. So those who were far off are brought near. So what a lot of people, you know, um, I'm thinking someone like Pastor Vody Bakum would say is, if God could reconcile two groups who are that far apart, right? Whose differences were not just skin tone. They were, those are differences in covenant. Like they were, they were worshiping two different gods completely. Why is it that black and white, and particularly even within the church, black and white Christians seem to be at such odds with one another. And I, I do think part of this is, is an idolatry problem, um, which is why I said a lot of black Christians would find themselves more comfortable at, a, at an atheist BLM rally where the leaders are chanting the names of dead people in, in basically what the Bible calls divination, right? Like they're, they're trying to channel the spirits of these people. And a lot of black Christians would find themselves more comfortable there with those brothers and sisters than they would 
in, you know, an even a white evangelical church, you know, somewhere across town. And that that is an idolatry problem. I'll, I'll say another thing, though. This is a lesson and a reminder that what fathers do matters. And whether you're talking about a father in his own home or the founding fathers, when you mishandle people, when you mishandle your family, your country, right? It may seem like a, like a, a small mistake at first, but if the founding fathers had, uh, if they had taken the abolitionist perspective on race, right? Because th there were people who, who believed in the equality of the races, quote unquote, right? At, at the time, at the time the country was founded. Not everyone, but some did. So as long as there's been slavery in this country, there's been abolition. If we started at a different place when it came to relations between what we call the races, our country would probably look a lot different. Now, I'm not armchair quarterbacking because it is what it is, right? It's done. I, I don't cry over spilled milk. I, I cry before the milk gets spilled to hope that it stays in the fridge where it's supposed to be. But I only say that to say, as fathers, it's important to manage your affairs well because the decisions that you make in this generation with your family could reverberate down the line um, to children that you've never even met. So if you're a father today and you abuse your wife or your children, or you have two families across town and three more in three different states, and when you pass away, your wife who, who thought that you were so faithful and so kind and you were a believer and you were deacon in your church, realizes that you have six other children and now those these three families are at odds with one another and fighting over property and so on and so on and so forth or if you're a father who has a, a problems with substances and alcohol and drugs and so on those things have an effect and we we see multi-generational some people call them curses but you see certain issues that reverberate down through the generations when it comes to families and i think that that's a good reminder um, so I, as much I agree with you, Jason, like I appreciate the founding fathers for what they created, what they left us. Right. And it's up to us to improve it. Um, but I also realize that what dads do matters. And, and I think it's a good reminder for all of us. I, I want to throw in one little small last point, get you to react okay. to that. And then I got to go because I'm running behind schedule. Okay. Uh, but. My contention is that the left, corporate media, uh, has framed Christianity as white mm. and bigoted. And that's why there's all the, oh, I, I can't be aligned with them. And, and so it, it's, it's a mind game that has been played on black Christians and black people that, oh, if I take the proper position on abortion, if I take the biblical position on same-sex marriage, oh my God, I'm aligning with these white Christian racist people. And, and again, they framed Christianity as racist, and it's just not, it's a trick to divide believers. And just yeah. all the way back to your point about Jews and Gentiles, Belief brought Jews and Gentiles together, and somehow we we've we can't as believers come together, yeah, because of this trickery 
of the left of framing Christianity as racist, that's what I find so offensive. And the, the left is consistent in this, in this sense. None of its major positions make logical sense when you walk them all the way out, right? And I'm thinking particularly, Jason, black Christians now, who on one hand will agree and say, you know, um, a modern evangelical Christianity is steeped in whiteness and white supremacy and, and you know, other black non-believers will say, you've heard this, you know, Christianity is the white man's religion. Now, some of those black Christians go to or grew up in churches where they saw black Jesus on the wall. And some of the black non-believers will tell you that the black man is the original man. But again, they, they cannot square, it's, it's the same way the logical inconsistencies of, of the, the, you know, the transgender debates or any of these other things that they, that they come up with, right? Even the abortion stuff. We're for black lives. We're against anything that has racial disparities that impact black lives, but we're for, but we're for abortion, right? We believe that trans men are men, uh, trans women are women. But again, if you put 100 able-bodied males with 100 uh, physically healthy trans women, everybody's dead in 100 years, or 50, or 25 for that matter. So these, these are theories and worldviews that, that don't make logical sense. And the white supremacy thing is what the left always does. They know as the world changes, as our material um, you know, conditions improve, the only stick, talking about you know, uh, uh, biblical leadership, right? These people are wolves in shepherd's clothing. The only shepherd stick that they have is racism because that's the thing that keeps us in line, at least from their perspective. And, and it's the same thing that Margaret Sanger said when she, when she sent that letter. And she says, we need to employ the black preachers to, to keep um, basically the more rebellious members in line. And Jason, I, I propose that you and I start here on Fearless, the league of what I'll, the league of uncontrollable Negroes, right? Loom or something like that, right? Where we need to start telling people, stop letting these people control you with phony race narratives. Because it is so obvious that that's all they do. They, they did the same thing with homeschooling. Homeschooling is racist. So we, we, we need to be rebellious members when it comes to the left's uh, uh, loony, loony business. Thank you, Delano. Thank you, Jason. Awesome Friday. That's a good note for us to end on as well as uh, some tomorrow and freedom. All right, uh, we'll see you next week. I want freedom. No negotiation, my sister, no relation. We all just want to have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving, all receiving. We all want to be free. We want freedom I just want, I wanna be I just want, I wanna be I just want, I wanna be I just want